Hey everybody, it's good to be back with you um, and being able to jump back into the book of Luke. Um, let me just open us up in prayer before we begin. Lord, we thank you for um, your grace and your mercy. We thank you for uh, how wonderful you are. We thank you for how much you love your people. Um, we know that even during this time of shelter in place and this COVID pandemic, Lord, that you are still in control and that this is still your church. And so I pray right now, Lord, that you would um, speak to your people, even though we're spread out. I pray that you would um, uh, send your spirit to uh, uh, illuminate these words and just help us to know you better because we spent a little bit of time together um, studying this text. This text. Um, so we just pray that you would do that now. Uh, in your son's name, amen. So um, it's good to be back. We're going to jump back into uh, the book of Luke today. Um, I actually wrote this one before the shelter in place, and I kind of edited some stuff uh, to mess with it. Um, I hope you're all having a uh, as good of a shelter in place as you can have. I'll tell you what I've been doing this whole time is I've been, um, well, I mean, studying different stuff and having a lot of conversations on Zoom with you folks. Um, but I've also been playing a lot of guitar. I've sort of been playing guitar for a really long time, and now I'm trying to kind of take it a little bit more seriously. And um, just the last few months, I've been taking lessons and stuff. And um, I've been recording some songs at my house. Um, just not that anybody will ever hear it. So don't even ask. But, um, you know, just kind of messing around. And um, I've been playing a, I have a little electronic drum set. I've been playing drums a little bit. Um, so I was in a band, though, in high school. And when I was in this band, we wrote a bunch of songs and we recorded a couple of CDs and that sort of thing. Um, but all of those songs are not great. Some of them are better than others. But um, you can tell that, at least on that one, the first CD we did, you can tell that a bunch of teenagers wrote these songs because all the lyrics are terrible. And I actually just, for my brother, re-recorded uh, one of those songs. Um, you know, that definitely sounds like a 15-year-old wrote it. Um, and even now, I'm not a songwriter. Like, I can play a couple of instruments and I can sing okay, but uh, I'm not a songwriter. Real songwriters amaze me, right? Guys like Tom Waits or uh, Jesse Lacey from Brand New or Bob Dylan or, you know, different people who write songs. Like, I've been really listening to this girl named uh, Phoebe Bridgers lately. Um, she's an amazing songwriter. Um, I like the dude from Bright Eyes, Connor Oberst. Anyway. Um, you know, who I hate, by the way, speaking of songwriters, is whoever wrote the song Baby Shark needs to be shot. Uh, just saying. Anyway, that guy drives me nuts. But real songwriters are absolutely amazing. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to read another song. We're going to read a song that was written by a teenager. Uh, but unlike the songs that my crummy band wrote when we were in high school, this song is actually pretty good. Um, so let me just give you the recap real quick. The The book of Luke, we're, we're jumping back together into the book of Luke. Now, the book of Luke opens up with Luke talking to this guy, Theophilus. Luke wrote this book for a dude named Theophilus. And Theophilus was probably some sort of a rich patron who had become a believer and sent Luke to write this book and the book of Acts, sort of a compilation of everything that had happened in the life of Jesus and in uh, the life of his church. And so Luke is sort of an investigative reporter, and he's going around and he's writing this story so that Theophilus will believe uh, the gospel, you know, so he would understand the gospel better. And so the story opens up with an angel appearing to a priest in the temple named Zachariah. And this priest was old, his wife was old, and they weren't able to have kids, and everybody thought that they were cursed by God. And so this angel shows up, 
and says, no, dude, you're going to have a kid. He's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And so um, Zechariah doesn't quite believe him, so he strikes him mute. But then the, sheen, the scene shifts from Jerusalem uh, in the, the mighty temple of God with the priests and all this to this bow-dunk town and this little peasant girl who was probably youth group age, right? Some, somewhere around just teenage girl. Um, and the same angel shows up to her and says, hey, and you are going to be um, the mother of the Messiah. And Mary, in her amazing faith, basically says, wow, that's crazy, uh, but okay. All right, let's do it. And so this week, what we're going to read is Mary's reaction to this, uh, what happens right after the encounter with the angel. And she's going to visit Elizabeth, and then she's going to write a song about everything that's happening. But like I said, it's not like those crummy songs that me and my band wrote when we were 15. Um, Mary is basically a kid when all of this is happening, but because she is so soaked in the scriptures, um, she writes this amazing song that could really fit in with any of the other psalms. Um, so let's uh, take a look at this. We're going to start. Um, first thing that happens is Mary, uh, she visits Elizabeth. So we'll start in verse 39. It says, In those days, uh, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. So Mary leaves with haste. She probably left right after the angel told her what was going on. She packed up her stuff and she took off, right? She dropped everything. Now, this doesn't mean a lot to us as we read this, uh, you know, in the 21st century, but in the first century, leaving like this was a huge deal. To any ancient reader, they would have really been able to see what was going on here. Um, Mary, remember, traveling at this time was super sketchy. And remember, Mary was a young girl. So uh, even in a time when traveling in a group was sketchy, Mary went uh, by herself in a time when women probably never traveled by themselves. And it shows how important this visit is to Mary, because here's what the angel said. He said, look, if you want more proof that this is going to happen, uh, go visit Elizabeth. She had a kid. She's having a kid in her old age, and that will be a sign for you. And so visiting Elizabeth is the confirmation uh, that what the angel told her is true. So she takes off from Nazareth to Judah. Uh, Judah is the area kind of right around Jerusalem, and so the southern part of Israel. And so Elizabeth and John probably live uh, somewhere near Jerusalem because he was a priest. And so uh, Jerusalem is up at the top of a mountain, and it's probably a three or four day walk from where Mary lived. And she does this as a teenage girl in a dangerous time all by herself. And when she gets there, she greets Elizabeth. Now, remember, we don't know what the relationship was between these two. We know that they're relatives. That's, a, that's what the word kind of means. But we don't know what sort of relatives. They were probably part of the same bigger clan, second or third cousin, something like that. But verse 41, look what happens. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So as soon as these two uh, come together, John, inside the womb, starts leaping for joy. Um, one church father writing about this, said that John was already prophesying about Jesus before he was even born. Basically, John couldn't wait to get started. He was created for this purpose, and he comes in contact sort of with Jesus, and he starts to go bananas. And then the, the next thing it says there is that Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is going to be a common theme in Luke, the Holy Spirit working in the people of God. And so, when it says that she is full of the Holy Spirit, she has completely surrendered her life uh, to God to the point where now she is uh, she is filled with the Holy Spirit, and He's uh, you know helping her call the shots. And so, verse forty-two. 
So filled with the Holy Spirit, look what she says. She exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So there's this loud cry, very emotional. Uh, she, she cries out and she says, blessed are you among women. Um, Elizabeth was blessed too, right? Pregnant in old age. She's the mother of the prophet that everybody's been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. And she knew all of this. But compared to the honor that Mary has been given, Elizabeth is basically saying, this is cool, but this is nothing, right? Blessed is the fruit of your womb. She knows that Jesus is not going to be like John. He's even more special. And we see that here in this next section, 43 and 44. Um, It says, and why is... This granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So right away, Elizabeth calls Jesus her Lord. That is absolutely amazing. That's a term that's kind of reserved for God the Father in the Old Testament. And so, uh, um, yeah, and in the next verse, actually, she calls God the Father the same thing, right? Elizabeth knows a lot about who Jesus is. Uh, and Because, remember, how's that? She's filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, she continues, And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, Elizabeth is saying, blessed are you, because you believed this angel. Uh, Mary probably told Elizabeth all about it. And Elizabeth could see it. She, Mary is really acting in faith. Imagine what this conversation was like. Imagine what they talked about. What would this mean for me and Joseph? What about my reputation? Uh, I hope they don't stone me when I go back to Nazareth. Uh, and I wonder, I bet she wondered too, like how will this kid end up being a king if he's born to a poor peasant girl uh, in the middle of nowhere. And so while thinking about all of this stuff and having this conversation with Elizabeth, who's probably walking her through a lot of this because she's an older, wiser lady, uh, Mary gets out her iPad and her Apple pencil and she opens up a new note file and inspired by the Holy Spirit, she writes down this amazing prayer, this amazing poem. Uh, it's a lot like a psalm. And here's the deal. At some point, Luke probably took Mary out for some coffee and he interviewed her. And uh, during that that coffee or lunch or whatever it was, she reaches into her bag and she pulls out this little scroll or whatever it was, maybe a little piece of papyrus, I don't know, you know. Um, And it was torn and it was old and it was the only copy and she hands it to him. And she says, look, I wrote this when I was at Elizabeth's house during that visit. It's the only copy. I've held on to it for all these years. Uh, I thought it was pretty good back then, but now that we've seen Jesus rise, uh, die and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven, boy, this makes a lot more sense. Um, I was inspired by the Holy Spirit when I wrote it, but I probably didn't even really understand all of it. Um, And as Luke opens up the scroll and he starts to read and he's absolutely blown away. And so what he does is he takes that scroll and he copies it into his notebook, hands it back to her because he wants to include this in his story that he's writing of Jesus's life. And so let's take a look now at this poem that Mary thought was worth saving for all of these years. Now, this poem, this song, Uh, is called the Magnificat. Now, uh, that comes from the Latin phrase. It's the first word uh, in the the song. There's a few of these songs, uh, two major ones, right? This one's called the Magnificat. The one that Zachariah writes, I think it's called the Benedictus. Um, And then there's a couple of other songs in these early... Luke writes the whole narrative of Jesus's birth around a few really cool songs. The angels sing a song and there's a prophet who sings a song. So we'll get to those other ones later too. But let's read this song together. 
It says this in verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Okay, so the first thing she talks about is, look at this, I I want to do a quick theological sidebar. Do you see that? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So what's a soul? What's a spirit? Um, well, what are, you, what are you made up of? What makes you you? Um, in secular naturalism, they'll say that you're made up of a body and a mind, but we don't really completely understand how that all works together. And that's it. Uh, others, though, are starting to think, some even non-believing scientists and psychologists and stuff are starting to think that there's something more like what the Bible calls a soul. Um, for example, Dr. Robert Lanza in Psychologi- uh, Psychology Today uh, said this, the results, and he's talking about some experiments and different things that he's done. He says, the results not only defy our classic intuition, uh, but suggest that the part of the mind, the soul, is immortal and exists outside of space and time. So this doctor now is starting to say, it looks like there's something more more like a soul. Um, George MacDonald, the author, said this. Um, he said, look, you don't, have a, you don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. Now, I get his emphasis, what he's trying to say, but I think he's wrong. I think the answer is that you're both, right? God created you with a body and a soul, and we're not created to be outside of our bodies, right? Human bodies and our souls are linked, and uh, there's a huge misunderstanding about what eternity is like because Oh, we're just these floating souls. But eternity is about having an actual physical body that you can touch and you'll be able to pick things up and feel and it'll just be a perfect version of what you are now. And so what about a spirit then? If that's the soul, what's the spirit? Well, this is the theological debate. Is it, there's a, it's called a trichotomy or dichotomy are the two sides. And in the trichotomy, what they say is you have a body, a soul, and a spirit, and all three of those are separate things. And I'm not going to, you can Google some of this stuff. I'm not going to get into like crazy what all, if you want to know more, let me know. I'll send you some articles and stuff. Basically though, I don't buy that. I think that the way the Bible uses the word soul and spirit is interchangeable. And you see that even here with Mary. Um, I think it means the deepest part of you, your soul, your spirit is the same thing, the real you, the spiritual you. And so she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Her praise is coming from deep down within her, from her very soul. And what she's praising God for is for being her savior. Um, Now, another quick theological sidebar is um, the Catholic church teaches that Mary was sinless, just like Jesus, so that the sin nature wouldn't be passed down. And I don't have time to get into all of this. I don't quite buy that, though, because even here, Mary is talking about God being her Savior. And the reason that you need a Savior is because you're a sinner. And so while I would say Mary is amazing, I wouldn't say that she's sinless. I think that's a really... um, Uh, misguided doctrine, right? So uh, we'll talk about Mary a little bit more at the end. Verse 48, so she continues in this song, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So Mary now is basically saying, who am I? Right? She's not approaching God with any kind of pride. Nothing in her is saying, look, I knew that I was destined for greatness. This is what Mary expected from life. She expected to marry Joseph, who was probably 10 or 15 years older than she was, have a bunch of kids, struggle in poverty, paying taxes to the Romans, and just trying to find food for her family. 
uh, serve the God that she loved and be faithful to the covenant as best as she could, and then die way earlier than people die nowadays in general, right? She never expected to be anybody that people would talk about much after her death. Um, there are different kinds of impactful people, right? Think about it. Um, what was your great-great-grandfather's first name? You probably don't know. Uh, I don't know mine. My dad did a genealogy book. He spent 20 years writing this big, giant book about our family genealogy. I have it in a PDF. It's pretty cool to flip through. I could look up my great-great-grandfather's name, but I don't know what it is offhand. Um, very few people will be remembered two or three generations down the line. But there are some people, right, like George Washington or uh, Martin Luther King Jr. or famous Amos from, you know, the cookies, right? These are the kind of impactful people who will be remembered for years. But even in 2,000 years, who's really going to spend a lot of time talking about George Washington or even Martin Luther King Jr.? Maybe historians. Um, but there are other kinds of people who span even longer stretches of time, right? Think of uh, Buddha or Muhammad or Socrates, Socrates for you Bill and Ted fans, uh, Julius Caesar. Some of these people are going to be talked about even thousands of years down the line. And now what Mary is saying is, I can't believe that I am going to be in that group. She She's blown away. She's a nobody from a nothing town uh, who will now be remembered forever. But unlike all of those other folks, it's not because of anything great that she specifically did. She's saying, this has all been done for me. That's what she says in verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So, um, this is why they're going to call her blessed, is because he who is mighty has done great things for her, right? She's claiming no responsibility for this. This is all a work of God. And the other amazing thing here is that she's not looking at this as a burden, um, which would be a totally understandable reaction. She's looking at this through the eyes of God, not through the eyes of man. And that's why she can say, holy is his name, right? He is perfect. His plan for her life is not what her plan for her own life was. But she she knows that as hard as it's going to be, his plan is perfect. And she can't believe that she's been chosen for this. So she continues, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. So mercy is not getting your just punishment when you've done something wrong, right? Sin demands the judgment of God and mercy withholds that judgment. And so um, those who receive mercy, right, they sit in the fear of the Lord, the awe of God, right? Um, Mary is praising God for this. She is in that moment of awe, right? The the fear of the Lord. She knows that she does not deserve this honor. She knows she has a sinner's heart, and she's thankful for what God is doing in her life. Now, uh, God isn't as much as she's a fallen and sinner, she knows that God is not about leaving his people in that fallen and wretched state. And so Mary, what she does next is she lists what we call the three great reversals, three ways that God has flipped the broken world upside down. So the first great reversal is in 51. Uh, he has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud uh, in, their, uh, in the thoughts of their hearts. Strength means that God can do whatever he wants. 
And what is it that he has done with that strength, with that absolute control over the entire universe? What is it that he has chosen to do is to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. God hates pride. Um, Pride is just an inflated view of yourself. It's I think I'm better than I actually am. And humility is not like a lower view of yourself than what's true. It's an accurate view of yourself. You know who you are as you compare yourself to God, as you compare yourself to Jesus. All right, so that's the first great reversal. He takes the uh, he he flips the the proud upside down. Fifty two. Um, the second great reversal. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble. Uh, uh, sorry, exalted those of humble estate. So as he brings the mighty down, he brings up the humble. Right. So think about all the the mighty people in Scripture that God has brought down. The, um, James four six says this, but he he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This has always been his pattern. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter four, who was the mighty king who had taken over basically the entire Near Eastern world. He had destroyed Jerusalem. He had destroyed. Uh, I think at this point he had won wars with Egypt and all these, you know, he was the mightiest king in the entire world uh, who had everything. And he was very proud. And at one point he even demanded to be worshipped as a god. And so what the real actual god did was he made him go a little bit crazy and sent him out in the field to eat grass with the wild beasts. Uh, And so he took this mighty king and he made him the lowliest human. Or think of Herod in Acts chapter 12, who stands in front of the people and is accepting worship. And then it says that he fell down and the worms ate him and he died. Uh, He died a violently painful death, right? So God did it again to this guy, Herod. But the best example of this in all of scripture is the story of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Now, Pharaoh was, again, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, but a little bit earlier, who was the most powerful king in the entire world. And Pharaoh even came to the point where he demanded to be worshipped as a god in the Egyptian pantheon. And so one thing that um, a lot of people don't know is it looks like in the Exodus with all the plagues, you remember the plagues, right? From, well, from the book of Exodus, but also from Charlton Heston, you remember this, let my people go, that whole thing. Um, All of those plagues, the flies, the locusts, the water to blood, were all um, uh, a spit in the face of one of the Egyptian false gods. And it it, uh, leads to the final plague, which was the death of the firstborn son, even the firstborn son of Pharaoh. So basically what God, the the real God did, Yahweh God, he went through each and every one of these Egyptian gods and he just flicked them and knocked them over one by one until he gets to even Pharaoh. And even Pharaoh at the end of that story is humbled um, until he eventually ends up at the bottom of the Red Sea. And so this is what God does. He brings down the mighty, but at the same time, he exalts those of humble estate. So uh, this is another consistent pattern in scripture. Um, in the, Especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, there was this ancient practice where the older brother was basically the most important member of the family, right? So he would inherit more of the um, the land and money and all that sort of stuff. He became the spiritual leader of his family, his clan. 
That was how they did things in the ancient world. But consistently, God takes that and he flips it and he lifts up a younger brother over an older brother. So think of Isaac and Ishmael, the two sons of Abraham. Which one of those two was the firstborn son? It was Ishmael. But who ended up being the son of promise? It was Isaac. Same thing with the uh, Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau. Esau was born first, but Jacob ended up becoming Israel, the son of promise. Or think of Joseph over his brothers, David over his brothers, right? The story of David is crazy, where Samuel is called to come and anoint one of the sons of Jesse uh, to be the next king of Israel. And so he shows up at the house and he goes through all the sons. Oh, this one's big and tall and handsome. I bet it's him. And then the Lord goes, nah, it's not him. And he goes through all the sons. And at the end, he gets to the end of the kids and he goes, is this all of them? Because God said it's none of these kids. And Jesse goes, well, you know, there's the runt. He's out and watching the sheep, but there's no way it could be him. And that's the guy that God chose to be the king of Israel. Um, There's other examples of this too. Think of Gideon, right? The mighty warrior, but actually he was hiding in the threshing floor. Or think of how uh, think of the ragtag group, we'll talk about this later in Luke, that the disciples were. These were not the prime choice, right, to start a spiritual movement. Or even think of Moses, right, the great Moses, the giver of the law. Who was he when God found him at the burning bush? He was a murderer with a speech impediment who was a fugitive running away from his crimes. And this is the guy that God said, you know what, I'm going to lift this guy up. That's the pattern, right? So the the the, the, the flipping of the pride and the lifting up of the humble, those are the first two. And then the third one uh, is in 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So God loves the poor too, not just the rich. Now, again, in this culture, people thought that if you were rich, it was because God had blessed you. And the richer you were, the more that God loved you. Now, that's a little bit of an oversimplification, but you get the idea. But the consistent story is that God doesn't care if you're rich or if you're poor. He'll use anybody. Um, There's the story of Lazarus and the rich man, right, Uh, who both die. And uh, Lazarus, the poor beggar, uh, is the one who ends up with the Lord, and the rich man doesn't, right? Uh, We'll get to this story. It's in Luke 16. We'll get there probably in 2025 or somewhere around there. Uh, But, you know, we'll talk about that later. But this, this one is especially important because think about who this book was written to right? Oh, most excellent Theophilus, which was a way to basically say, you are a very important dude. Theophilus was probably pretty wealthy, and right from the get-go, Luke is trying to teach him about the upside-down kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom of God, he's saying, does not work like the kingdom of Rome. You may have money in the kingdom of Rome, but that doesn't really matter as far as your status with the Lord. It's completely opposite to how the world does things. So those are those three great reversals. Then uh, she continues in verse... uh, Um, 54 and 55. Uh, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So now she's talking corporately, right? He has helped his servant Israel in mercy. So let me tell you the story of Israel. Um, The nation started with a guy named Abraham that God plucked out of paganism and basically said, hey dude, I'm your God now. And Abraham was the father of faith because he said, okay. And the way the covenant with Abraham worked is, He had no kids and he was getting older and God said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And then that nation is going to bless all the other nations. And that was the covenant. And so Abraham had some kids. We talked about them, right? Had Isaac and then Jacob, and then he had his 12 sons. And then those, that's where the book of Genesis closes with those guys living in Egypt. And then we pick up the story a bunch of years later, and now they're slaves in Egypt and God redeems them from slavery with the great 
uh, story of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus, the redemption from slavery. And God does the plagues, and he gets his people, saves them at the Red Sea, and then in the book of uh, Exodus, it was it Exodus 20, at the Mount Sinai, he gives them the law, and he says, this is how we're going to do this. This is how I'm going to be your God, and you guys are going to be my people. But the continued pattern is that these people were consistently unfaithful to God. So it starts just even there, right? As Moses is up on the mountain getting the law, what are the people down doing? They're worshiping uh, a, a, an idol, a, uh, the golden calf with Aaron, and they're all dancing around, and they're having this orgy, and they're doing all this stuff in this party, and they're basically spitting in God's face, worshiping him in a way that he has not asked them to worship him. And then they get out into the wilderness, and they complain about the food and the water and everything, and they consistently rebel against Moses and Aaron's leadership over and over and over again, Till eventually that generation dies away and the next generation takes over the promised land. And as they get into the promised land, what happens? They only take over part of it. They, they give up halfway through. They get content and they don't follow through on God's instructions. And then comes the period of the judges. And in the period of the judges, there's this cycle. And the cycle goes like this. The people are faithful to God, but then eventually they wander away and they worship other idols. Then God sends somebody to oppress them. God takes his hand of blessing off of them, and a foreign king comes and oppresses them, then they cry out to God, then God sends a savior, and then they worship God for a little while, and then they fall right back into the cycle, and they just do it over and over and over again, until eventually they get tired of this, and they say, look, we want a king. And they tell Samuel, we don't want God to be our king anymore. We don't want... Uh, they say to God, right, we don't want you to be our king. We want a king like all the other nations. And so God gives them these kings. And most of these kings are pretty terrible. And they lead them into idolatry until the point, um, and during this time, the, oops, the nation splits into uh, to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, the northern kingdom of Israel got so bad that in 722 BC, God sent in the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire came in, they killed almost everybody and took the rest into slavery and uh, destroyed the northern kingdom completely to where all of those tribes disappeared from the people of God. So then the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah was left. And in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, it was the same pattern, just with a couple of good kings sprinkled here and there. But for the most part, the people were uh, faithless to God. Um, and it was during this time, until eventually God sent Nebuchadnezzar into, for the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. But during that time, right, of kings where the people were consistently unfaithful, there's this prophet, and his name is Hosea. And God says, your life is going to be a living parable. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to marry that woman uh, and over there, and she's going to be consistently unfaithful to you. And that's what happens. He marries her and then she cheats and then he, she gets sold into slavery and he goes and he buys her back and they just keep doing the cycle. And God says, that's me and the people of Israel. Uh, I'm the faithful husband and they're the unfaithful wife. And that's how it's always been. Now, I just read a story about a pastor in one of those heretical prosperity gospel churches uh, who cheats on his wife and he makes up. He makes it up to her by buying her like a $200,000 car. And that's a pretty common story, right? Uh, rich people cheating on their wives and then buying them presents to make up for it. But here's the thing. The mercy and the grace of God with his people, it's so amazing that it's kind of the other way around. Imagine if the story was flipped, right? Imagine uh, if the husband cheated on the wife and then she found out about it and she comes to him and says, look, I love you so much. 
anyway, even though you're unfaithful, that I bought you a $200,000 car. That's what Mary is praising God for here. His people continually cheated on him. They kept leaving. And uh, you bought us a $200,000 car anyway in the birth of this king, right? It's so much more than we deserve. He is faithful even when his people are faithless, and it's amazing. And that's kind of, that's how the poem ends, with the faithfulness of God. And then the last verse here, 56, and Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. So she finishes writing her poem, she puts it away, and then she heads home. Imagine the dread, though, of heading home. Imagine what she's facing. Um, but I think Mary in this story, she is absolutely amazing with her faith. I think what I said earlier about the Catholics who think she's sinless, I think they take it too far. But on the other side, I think Protestants don't take it far enough. Mary really was amazing. Let me show you why. Um, there's some background here that, as you read the Old Testament, uh, becomes blatantly obvious that Mary actually ripped off a lot of this song. I want to read to you from 1 Samuel 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, here's the background. There was a woman, her name was Hannah, and she was married, and her husband also had another wife. So there were two of the wives. And the other wife had a whole bunch of kids, and Hannah didn't have any kids. She was barren. And so um, uh, Hannah would show up to the temple, and she would beg God for a son. And she even said, look, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. I'll let him work at the temple, you know, um, and so she's there, and she's she's praying, and she's crying to the point where the high priest even comes up to her. Not the temple, by the way. It was the tabernacle. But anyway, um, the uh, high priest Eli comes up to her, and he says, look, lady, no drunk people here. He, she was so distraught that he thought she was intoxicated or whatever. And she says, look, I'm not drunk. And she tells the story. Anyway, long story short, she ends up uh, having a son. That son is Samuel, the, the great prophet and judge, the last judge of Israel. Now, when that happens, she writes this amazing poem, uh, this sort of a psalm. It says this, verse 1, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more. So very proudly, let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises, uh, he raises up the poor from the dust, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap, and makes them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard... <clears throat> Sorry, he will guard the feet of the faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So there's a lot of comparisons here uh, as you read Mary's song and you read this one back to back. The talk about those great reversals, the praise for the Lord for who he is and what he has done for her. And it's to the point where 
a lot of theologians have noticed this. One of them is Philip Ryken, who says this, um, There are echoes from Hannah in Mary's song, but not just from Hannah. The Magnificat either quotes from or alludes to verses from Genesis, Deuteronomy, First and Second Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. That's 11 different books. Uh, and then he finishes, he says, Mary tried to put virtually the whole Bible into her song. Right? That's what... That's what's so amazing about this song is Mary was so soaked in scripture that this sounded like uh, part, you know, uh, sounded like the Old Testament songs. Um, I used to think, I'll give you a, I'll tell you a story. I used to um, really be kind of a punk, you know, and I was part of a church that had a lot of older people in it. And those older people would get up in church and they would pray, oh, Lord, do this and, um, you know, for thee and thine and whatever, you know, all that kind of language. And I used to think, man, these guys are so stuffy. That is not any sort of a natural way to talk. They're all trying to stand up in front of each other and uh, compete to see who can sound the most formal and godly and whatever. That's what I thought. But that's not really what was happening. Right? I used to think, oh, they can't really be praying. But here's the thing. What was really going on there was they grew up reading the King James Version, all of these people. And so what they were doing is they were just praying in a tone to them that sounded like the Bible. And that's what Mary's doing here. She's praying in a tone to her that sounds like her Bible. So I want to talk about the Bible for a minute. I want you to see what's going on here. The Bible is... <clears throat> It's not a systematic theology. A systematic theology is a list of this is what we believe about angels. This is what we believe about uh, justification. This is, you know, and they're all put into order. But that's not how the Bible is organized. Um, the Bible is put into a narrative. And that's very important because here's the thing. We all live in stories, right? If I asked you for a second, would you rather be an expert in some field like biology or computer programming or engineering or something like that? Or would you rather be an expert in a TV show? Which one would you choose? You would probably choose the engineering degree or whatever it is. But here's the thing. How much time do you really ever spend reading engineering books? You don't. What do you spend most of your time doing? Watching TV. Why? Because TVs and movies are stories, and we're wired to think about the world in stories. We're narrative creatures. It's built into who we are. Now, there are some people that think they've moved past that into just rationality, and they're logical and that sort of thing, like Spock. Um, and they've moved past these kind of stories, but it's just not true, right? There really aren't people like that. And one... Uh, Everybody lives in some kind of a story. And one of the places that we can really see this in our world is advertising, right? Originally, advertising was all about the facts of a product. So if you find an old TV ad from the 50s, what you'll see is a little picture of a TV in the corner and then a big block of text explaining why the TV uh, is better than those other guys, you know, TV, even though they were probably the same. But as advertising became more effective, what happened? They started telling stories and they tried to make you a part of the story. This is what the show Mad Men was all about, or one of the things it was about. Uh, how did how ad people told stories to try to sell products. So let me give you some examples, right? Think about it. Axe body spray. They tell a story. They say, wear this and then you'll get the girls. What's the truth of it though? People wear too much of it and then everybody on the bus hates their guts. Uh, or beer ads, right? Drink this and join the party. 
car ads drive this and be sophisticated, right? Be important. Uh, what they do is they create a problem and then they try to solve it with their product. You need these girls. You need this good time. You need this, this status that the car will give you. But it's not just ads that do this. We do this all day. We don't see the world in sort of rational categories. We see the world in story and narrative. So for instance, if you're married, I bet when you were uh, younger, you never sat down and wrote out a pros and cons list about why you wanted to get married. What happened was in your head, you told yourself a story. This is what my life would look like if I was married. This is what my life would look like if everything fell into place and marriage was just a part of that story. And so then you got married to move your life towards the end of that story. The problem is, though, that a lot of our stories don't really cut it. They don't deliver. This is one of the big reasons that so many marriages fail, because the truth is we put all this pressure of this story onto a marriage that can never deliver on that promise. Um, this is why a lot of celebrities and rich people are not that happy, right? They thought that getting famous would solve all their problems. They thought that having a lot of money would solve all their problems. But then they got rich, they got famous, whatever it is. They got the thing that they were trying to get their whole life, and then they were still miserable, and now they're out of ideas. It's why there's so much hopelessness, right, in Hollywood. Um, the story that they were living turned out to be false. And so... What does this all have to do with the Bible? Well, the gospel found in the scriptures is the truest story, right? The gospel is why we're here. It's it, uh, Sorry, the gospel tells us why we're here. It tells us why everything is broken, how God is bringing his kingdom to earth and is going to fix this mess. It tells us how eventually all of his followers are going to live with him in a renewed heaven and earth. And it tells us how to make sense of the world around us right now, how to have relationships, how to deal with money, uh, where to put our hope, how to deal with loss, what to do in a pandemic, right, in the midst of a pandemic. And so first, I want to talk to the people who are watching this who are not followers of Jesus yet. Um, I think it's really cool that you're watching this, and we really want The Porch to be a safe place for you to figure out what it is that you believe, right? We want you to be able to ask questions. Uh, we want to um, we want you to be able to find answers, hopefully, but what we really want to do is encour encourage you to examine the gospel story. And so one of the ways you do that is ask yourself, this is my challenge to you, ask yourself this question, what is it that you think will make you happy? Where is it that you've placed your hope? Where is your identity? Is it in your job, your family, your sexuality, in money, uh, in a hobby, whatever it is, right? I think coronavirus, what this has done for us is it's shifted a lot of people's life stories. It's making people take stock and think, what is it that I'm really hoping in, right? What is it that I think is going to make me happy? As we read the book of Luke together, I encourage you to come back and continue to watch uh, these messages and to read the book of Luke, and I want you to have an open mind. And what would be great is just compare the gospel story to your own story. And uh, what I think will happen is that you'll see the gospel story is not oppressive, it's freeing, it's beautiful. It's the truest story around. It's the ultimate story that all stories point to. And it will satisfy you the way that no other story will. Now, to the, the followers of Jesus who are watching this now, there's a crucial idea for you here too. Let me ask you this. Are you living multiple stories, right? Is the, the Bible just being one of them? This is what a lot, a lot of American Christianity is all about. I call it the TV dinner faith. Do you remember those TV dinners? 
where you had your ham steak in one compartment, you had your, your veggies in one compartment, that what's supposed to be mashed potatoes, but it's just white goop in the other compartment, and then your peach cobbler in the other. And I think a lot of American Christianity has people whose lives are organized like those dinners. Nothing ever touches. I've got my work over here, my family over here, uh, you know, my... Uh, peach cobbler over here is my church or you know whatever it is uh, but i don't think uh, uh, christianity is supposed to be like those tv dinners i think christianity is supposed to be like fried rice and the soy sauce is the gospel right your life is supposed to, every part of your life is touched by the gospel jesus isn't okay with just some of you it's all or nothing those are the options but why well think about marriage the Bible talks about uh, our relationship with Christ using the analogy of marriage. Uh, imagine if you were married and you said to your spouse, look, I'm going to give you 20% of myself. The other 80% of my life is going to have absolutely nothing to do with you. That's no recipe for a marriage. And so Jesus also doesn't leave us that option either. Either he is Lord or something else is. Either you're living the gospel story or you aren't. Mary is a great example of this wholehearted faith resting on one story so that in the biggest moment of her life, she was looking at it through the lens of scripture. Do you see that? She was so deep into gospel truth that when everything around her was turned upside down, she already had that firm foundation to support her. She was all in. She was amazing. And so my encouragement to you is to really live into this gospel story kind of the way Mary did. And how do we actually do that, though? The way we do it is we look to Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He's the Redeemer, right? You don't save yourself. He does that for you. He is your hope, not your own planning, not your own control. Hope is found in Him. He is your identity, right? The truest thing about you is that He has made you a child of God. And so my final question then is, what other stories aside from the gospel, are you living? What other narratives have you taken and mixed in with Christianity? I believe the gospel at church, but when I'm at work, I believe this other story. At home, this is my story. My identity, this is my story. My money, this is the story. And what I want you to do is think about those stories. And once you've identified what those other stories are, ask yourself this, how is the gospel story better? Because that's the point. When you soak yourself in scripture the way that Mary did, that we can see through this beautiful song that she's written, you, you'll end up just like her. Not sinless, but gospel-saturated. And when you're gospel-saturated, you will see how much better the gospel story is than all of those other stories in your life. And once you see that, you will be able to more fully live with Jesus as the king uh, of your life.